Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Welcome, friends, back to the School of Unlearning. Uh, Today's episode, we're sitting down with my friend and author, Kimberly Ann Johnson. Kimberly's the author of the early mothering classic, The Fourth Trimester, Healing Your Body, Balancing Your Emotions, and Restoring Your Vitality, which is published in seven languages around the world. Kimberly is a sought-after practitioner and lead authority in postpartum health and has worked hands-on in integrative women's health and trauma recovery for more than a decade. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, Vogue, New York Magazine, The Cut, Harper's Bazaar, and Today.com. She is the author of the new book, Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power, and Use It for Good. Kimberly and I met two years ago in a sauna in ice, and we hit it off immediately in terms of just feeling safe and curious and and friends with each other. Um, This episode is really special to me because uh, Kimberly's book has been very much a call to action for me to recalibrate and get to know my nervous system on a more somatic level. Um, I have her to thank for a lot of my own healing in the last year since this book has come out. In this episode, which I think you're going to love, you will learn a lot about Kimberly's early childhood and how that shaped her ability to... um, find her place in the world. She used intellect as sort of her refuge and um, sort of found positive reinforcement through academics early on, mainly to escape a lot of the um, sort of bullying she went through and eventually um, some of the sexual assault she experienced in college. And all of that has paved the way for her to find safety, to find peace, and to find a language within the human body and social connections. Uh, We cover a lot, everything from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic systems, Uh, We discuss productivity and pleasure. Uh, We discuss ultimately the value of community and how her book is ultimately, I believe, um, uh, a key part in finding coherence, which is what she's ultimately after and and working towards in her work. So um, please enjoy this episode. Sit back, take it all in, listen to it a few times if you need to, because it's just jam-packed with insight, wisdom, and uh, really incredible nuggets that we all need for a, a more peaceful Um, communal world. So enjoy. Hey, Kimberly, what's up, friend? Hi. Welcome to the School of Unlearning podcast. I'm tuning in from my little Brooklyn apartment, which I've had you over here before. So it's kind of fun to um, be tuning in virtually with you today, too. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I, um, we met in a sauna about year and a half ago two years ago now almost feels like a lifetime just because so much has happened and um yeah I was was really interested in your work with you know the your first book the fourth trimester and then when this book came out um it really was a it was a huge shift for me personally because I've been working on calibrating my nervous system for some time after like working at a medical startup and then running my own business and all kinds of grief too just through life So this book really spoke to me. So I'm so stoked that you're able to talk to us today. And I've had a lot of people on Instagram and in my world reach out, just say that they can't wait to hear what you have to say about attachment styles in particular, um, sex for sure, and then just the nervous system. So if those three are good for you today, I would definitely want to dive in by the end about those three. For sure. That's a lot. So 
Um, I know we'll have so many things to touch base on. I was also thinking about how we met in the sauna and, uh, you know, we're in a, for those of people who are listening, don't know, we were sitting in a driveway, a, a roll-up sauna that's in a driveway with ice tubs outside <laughs> and what a cool way that is to meet people because everyone's kind of dropped what they're normally doing and we had so many great conversations inside the sauna that would be so much harder or take so much longer to get to if there mm-hmm. if it wasn't such an unusual circumstance. Yeah, and I think the cool thing about being in that sauna and the ice was like it was such an experiential thing, but also like none of us really knew each other. We didn't know each other's backgrounds. We didn't know what each other had studied or gone through personally. And then you're in this like uber intimate setting, like going through like nervous system calibration basically <laughs> together. So um, it was dope. So I actually don't know a lot about life before the sauna, before the day I met you. So, I mean, I have read your book. I know some, some of what you share. I'd love to start out with, if you're willing, um, to talk a little bit about what life was like for you growing up. What was childhood like and um, who were some influential people for you when you were young? Sure. Uh, Well, I was born in Northern California and I was raised in Southern California. And I was recognized as being very smart very early. So I went to school early and then I skipped a grade when I was in school. So when I was six, I was in the third, fourth combination. And so I was a six-year-old in school with eight and nine-year-olds. And I think for me, that was probably one of the most marked parts of my upbringing because before that, I feel like socially, I don't remember too much about the question of fitting in or not fitting in. But I remember that once I was going to school with older kids, I felt very out of place in mostly because I was really acting like a six-year-old. So I would say like, oh, we're supposed to have a test today or I did my homework and I loved homework. I loved school. uh, And that's so unpopular by the time you're eight or nine years old. (laughs) So um, Mm. I just became very ostracized. And um, then I had the unfortunate moment of going to the first day of fifth grade in a Kelly Green jumpsuit, uh, which gained me the nickname of Froggy for the rest of the year. And uh, that kind of, I re- my refuge was my intellect. So I always loved learning, loved school. And I mean, I didn't always love going to school because there were times when I was, even in high school, I had a group of boys that um, would scream across the quad at me and call me fire crotch and that I became very um, afraid of running into. But the act of being a student, I always really loved. And as Mm -hmm. I went on into my life and went to college, I realized the impact of not having, having so much intellectual and mental capacity, but not as much experience socially. So my first major experience of my life that turned my world upside down was a sexual assault when I was in college and that ended up going through the school court system. So this latest book that I wrote called The Wild, uh, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power and Use It for Good, I'd say that that experience of sexual assault, which was predisposed by those earlier experiences of what would now be called bullying, but at the time was just sort of what I was going through, 
Uh, I never thought to like mm-hmm. tell any adults about it or anything. I just figured I had to figure out how to survive it. Uh, so mm. that book is really about the reckoning with being in a female body uh, and handling sexuality. You know, it was it looking back, it was like, why did they decide to call me fire crotch of all the things they could call me? Why did they go for the genitals? Why did they go like and why mm. was that specifically mm-hmm. so embarrassing or so? shaming Hmm. um in those early years when you would like you know hear these guys yelling across the quad and saying things to you that were vulgar and offensive and aggressive um did you have any friends or people in your network uh girlfriends friends family who were there to support you at all or just to to find closer friendships with safer friendships I had a lot of good friends, but one thing that was confusing, I went to a pretty small prep school, so we had like 85 people in each class, and these specific groups of boys were in the class older than me. Most of my friends were friends with them, so mm. that was that was strange. It was like it didn't really matter. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember actually like walking with them when that when those kinds of name callings and things would happen, but they they were definitely aware that. I felt like they hated me and my friends were definitely aware that the dynamic was going on, but the school was so small that for them, that was like a cool group of guys. So the fact that they were friends with them was giving them some kind of a status. And so it's, I don't even remember feeling betrayed by them. I just felt like it wasn't, it wasn't their job and it wasn't even possible that it would go differently. Hmm. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I always had, I didn't feel that I didn't have friends. I definitely had friends. And I, you know, I was a dancer. I was part of a dance group, performing dance group. I, I played sports. Uh, and, I, and I didn't feel like I was an outcast necessarily because I, I had good friends and, you know, I, I had a relative degree of safety at home. It was something that just felt like I just had to live with it. And there was no alternative. And I, it never occurred to me to confront them. Mm-hmm. It never mm-hmm. occurred to me that I could actually just walk up to them and say, like, what's your problem or why are you doing that? Because the feeling was that if I walked up, there would be more people that would coalesce against me. And there was one kind of ringleader of the whole thing. And it was interesting because my, my junior year, which was his senior year, he walked straight up to me and I thought he was organizing like some kind of a practical joke. Like I thought I was going to get like ice dumped on my head or someone was going to trip me or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he walked up to me to apologize to me and told me that one of these, uh, one of my friends told him I was cool and he didn't know why he was doing that and that he was sorry. And I didn't really know what to do because it had been five years of that, you know, it's like, if it was just one wow. time or two times, but like five years of feeling really afraid and, and really avoiding mm. uh, it, I was really surprised. And that story has an interesting interesting ripple effects over time. But um, mm-hmm. eventually, you know, I accepted the apology. And that's also interesting. Like, I'm not sure why I just didn't say like, fuck you, you know, like, fuck off. Like, right. no, you don't get to apologize right. in one minute for five years. But I guess I just... I just wanted the situation to go away. And there was something very compelling about this person. He was definitely an alpha male. And he was 
extremely brilliant. So he was known to like never do any work and or any homework and then turn in papers and get great mm-hmm. grades on them. So there was this mm-hmm. captain of the soccer team, you know, just a lot of, um, I guess, charisma in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the approval felt like, oh God, okay. So now like I'm on, I'm on the in, not I'm, I'm popular cause I was never popular, but I was always known as someone who had friends in lots of different friend groups. And it's been really cool getting older and running into people and having those people confirm for me. Like, yeah, I always felt like you were on my side or I always felt like you were interested mm-hmm. because my yeah. perception was like, oh, no one really wants, no one really likes me enough to include me in their group. But, like, I'm okay to be among them. So it's, Hmm. you know, how we are perceiving at the time versus what people remember or what we remember are different. And this year Hmm. is my 30th year high school reunion. Uh, Hmm. Are you going to go? It it may be the first one I go to. Yeah, I haven't ever been to one. But I feel like I'm finally at a place where I feel good enough about myself that I would want to do that. It's, I kind of want to be a fly on the wall or at least debrief with you after if you're willing. I just feel like it's going to be a really interesting social experience, especially after so much of, you know, your evolution. And it it sounds like there's been some level of healing in your book to, to make peace with your past. And obviously the writing of the book probably helps with that. But also, you know, one thing I want to go back to those five years of, of bullying effectively what was your fear response? Like, how were you in flight? Were you in freeze? Were you all of it? Avoidant. Do you remember? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I would say, I mean, avoidance is a kind of flight, right? So avoidance, denial, um, a, a minimization of my actual optical perspective, like just make my world smaller so that I'm not having, so, and like try, try not to be seen. And it's so hard when you have mm-hmm. bright red hair um, to not be seen. I remember I had some kind of an ankle sprain and bee sting. And so I had to walk with a boot on first for a little bit. And I remember that making me feel really vulnerable because I couldn't have, like if I needed to run and get away, I couldn't. So to a certain extent, it was registering in my system like an inescapable attack. Like I have to go to this school. I have to go on this small place. Wow. And there's just, there's no way I can avoid these people. Mm-hmm. And, if, you know, it's funny because I've run into some of them around town. I don't think they remember at all. Some mm-hmm. of them do. One of them, the ringleader definitely does. Uh, he doesn't live around here. But it's like they, to them it wasn't any big deal. But to me, it was like I was in that prey situation, you know, that prey thing all the time. So mm-hmm. it's been interesting over the years to have so many opportunities to be with types like that and mm-hmm. see how I just automatically assume that like I have a friend whose husband is really a lot like that. And I just assume he doesn't like me and I just interpret his behavior as like, he's, he doesn't like me. And, uh, I don't think I'm the only one who interprets his behavior that way, but mm-hmm. I see how much of it is a reflection of those earlier years and, um, I was actually, I had a very reparative experience about five years ago because I dated someone who was also a soccer player at my high school. Uh, we, we matched on Tinder and after a correspondence, we ended up um, being together for a year. And it was like he 
he wasn't one of them because he was in a different year, but he was that same type, very popular mm-hmm. in high school, had a lot of swagger, mm-hmm. and it felt like to be loved by him and to and not to be judged in the way that I was before, but be seen mm-hmm. for who I am now, I think was really reparative. Yeah, I love that word reparative, especially. And to some extent is being in the, um, what we might call the biohacking world, where there's a lot of jockey people and, you know, being in community and breathwork in other ways also I think was really repaired to just like erase those distinctions that had gotten imprinted earlier. Yeah. I'm actually really curious because you said you were a really good student. Um, how you were able to stay focused and to learn in school when there was so much fear and, you know, threat going on around you for those years. It, how, how did that happen for you? Or was it just, it was, you were immersed into academics and you were able to focus. I just know for me, when I had a lot of fear and trauma going on as a kid, I, I got like C's and D's cause I was so scared about what would happen at home, right. Or whatever was going on. So I'm just curious how you balance that. Well, I got a ton of positive reinforcement for being smart, both from my family and at school. A little bit less so when I was in junior high and high school because I was at a school with so many other really quote-unquote smart people. Or, And I think when I say smart, I mean people who can do well in school, right? Like I have the kind of mind that does well in traditional school. Um, I do really well mm-hmm. on tests. Stress doesn't affect my ability to take tests. I think it's really like it's a, I think it's how a lot of people like how we see how do people get through med school in the most I mean that it's so stressful, right? They yeah. you lock it in a gear right. called overdrive and you just don't you don't let yourself even imagine what it might be outside of overdrive. How are people mm-hmm. working mm-hmm. 80 hour work weeks? It's like you get so much reinforcement for being productive you don't have to you don't have to stop and feel anything and I think that you know to 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 feel the heartbreak of what it would be to go in a public space and and every single day be trying to avoid someone or a group of people it was just much easier for me to narrow my focus and do what I could do well and, mm-hmm. and also it was very future oriented for me. So while I was getting some degree and it, was, and it had been built, right? Because when I, was, when I skipped from first grade to third grade, I was going up to like fifth grade for math or whatever. So right. it wasn't necessarily, I didn't get, I got mostly A's in high school, but I was like, I wasn't even in the top 10 because I was in school with people. When I was a senior, I was 16. I was, there were some 19 year olds in my class. So, you know, you wow. can't keep up with that intellectually and developmentally or maybe you know there was maybe one like person who did but regardless it wasn't really so much about that I was it was all future oriented for me so it was basically like if I do as well as I possibly can then I can get out of here and I can go to a place Mm -hmm. where I want to be because all of high school all the adults in my life would be like yeah high school is not going to be great for you but college is going to be awesome and you're going to love college so Mm. Right. It was like do the get the get do all this to get to the best college you possibly can and then you can let go and then you can have a good time. Then you can focus on your social life. And that's actually what I did. It it worked. I got into mm-hmm. Brown, which was my first choice, which I was 
told was the most diverse of the Ivy Leagues. Um, and that, that's sort of why it was so heartbreaking that the sexual assault happened so early on in school because that was where I wanted to be. That's what, like, I actually got to the place, and I, and I did. I took everything pass-fail because you could, and I said, I'm not going to do this thing of, like, just spend all my time just, you know, trying, trying, trying so hard. I'm going to just mm -hmm. loosen my grip, and I'm going to have fun, and I'm going to get to know people, and I'm going to be social. And there were so many people there that I was interested in, interest, like, you know, looking around and seeing people and being like, oh, I want to know that person and that person and that person. That's not an experience I had in Southern California before that. Right. So, um, yeah, I think we all have different strategies for stress and, and how we metabolize stress. I think a lot of my life from age 23, when I graduated, well, I graduated in 97, yeah, so 23, because um, I took two years off and then I trans transferred, was a stress pendulation. So I had, I had tightened it down so far. I graduated first in my class from college gave my speech and everyone's like, all right, so where are you going to school? You know, like what, what law school are you going to? What policy think tank are you going to be at? And I was like, I'm moving to New York to dance. Mm -hmm. And it was my, the next probably 15 years of my life were a pendulation away from this rational intellectual value to, no, I'm going to do what I love. I'm going to opt out of this system because it doesn't seem to be making people that happy. And just mm -hmm. now, maybe in the last five years, I've been able to come around to a balance between the two, that it doesn't have to just mm -hmm. be only somatic and only body focused, and it doesn't have to be only intellectual, and that there's certain parts of the system that I'm really interested in and certain parts of conversations you get access to if you, if you do opt into some systems that are important to me. Mm -hmm. So I think, it, you know, there's larger scale pendulations that happen. Yeah, it's really interesting if you obviously you have because this is your life, right? You've mapped your experience from like behavioral to nervous system to the obviously the somatics. And it's like it very much mirrors, obviously, the environments that you sought to find safety. And it, it is heartbreaking. You're right that you found a home in Brown and, and then, you know, um, that that sexual assault happened. I'm curious if, if at Brown or at the next college you went to or in the gap, there was sort of a pivotal moment where you decided um so sort of live more more socially in the body. I mean, was it before or after the the rape incident um, where you decided to actually make friends with the body, make friends with social the social world and re really find your voice again there? Well, when I left Brown, I that was a huge move for me because I left in the middle of semester. My parents lost the money from that semester. It was basically kind of like an I surrender, I can't, I can't do it anymore type thing. I'm trying and trying and trying, but I can't. And I, that's when I found yoga. So that was in 93. And mm -hmm. I decided that I needed to leave the U.S. and go somewhere where everything, I needed to be of service somehow because I knew that I was falling into self-obsession like I just all I could think about was my own experience and my in and like how I what I was going to do and how bad I felt basically so yoga was that was like the first seed that was planted 
I had always, I was still dancing, but as I've learned more and more about somatics and I'm, and I teach about it, I realize that those experiences, all of them in my body have been useful. And, and, and that was also a part of, that's where I had like soul expression and I had real teachers. Like my high school dance teacher mm-hmm. was a real actual teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. But when I decided to go back to college, the first semester I got all A's and an A plus, which I didn't even know you could get an A plus in college. And the, mm-hmm. re- the what resulted from that was the feeling of, well, now that I have it, I better not lose it. And so I danced way more at Northwestern. And my one of my dance teachers was a Feldenkrais practitioner, and there were somatic elements to it. But I'd say that going back into school, I didn't really like Northwestern. I didn't really like the Midwest. I didn't – it was sort of like this – it just felt like a concession prize in a way, not because of the status of it, but because of the environment, the feeling of being there. So I kind of clicked back into – how I got to the place where I graduated first, um, which was like, let's just <laughs> do this since we're here. Um, but after that, when I made the choice to not go to grad school, and, and, and that choice was also based on the male power dynamic because I wanted to go to Princeton to study with Cornell West, but my, and my advisor at the time had been at Princeton and I had chosen to do a lot of independent studies with him. And the day that I graduated, he called me to his, into his office and he came on to me. And he basically made it clear that he wouldn't write my recommendations if I wasn't willing to be sexual. So I left and mm. realized at that point that I had compromised my chances at going to grad school. I mean, not compromised them. I didn't have them anymore because I didn't have any other people to go to for recommendations who knew me well enough at that point. Hmm. So, uh, hmm. it takes a lot of courage to continue to give people and give yourself like opportunities when there is this, especially in the male, it's, it seems like there's a lot of male threats in your life growing up. Like those five years with those boys bullying you, uh, the incident at Brown and then this professor, right? So how do you, is is a lot of the work that you do, you know, in somatics and healing, and um, is that sort of driven to help you and help help you make peace with and heal from all of these characters, these more male dominant characters that have sort of come across in your life? Definitely, it shifted the trajectory, and you know, I feel like I can teach people about it because I really understand it but Mm. these things happened a long time ago you know I'm 47 so 30 years ago and 25 years ago so there's been a lot of other reckoning since then but I think Mm. being a woman and reckoning with power you know we haven't liberated ourselves yet so there's so many ways that we're contending with that all the time And I do believe that as we understand our default nervous system responses more, 
that we have the opportunity to liberate ourselves and, and hopefully not just individually, but also collectively. But I don't think we even know what that looks like because it's always in response to this system that's right. in place right. that's inherently dysfunctional. Yeah. So I would say that when Me Too began and I saw all of these attempts in so many different ways of people unshaming themselves but knowing what I know about the nervous system, wondering about how that was actually going to play out over time. And um, that's it still is playing out, but it's been eclipsed by the fact that we're in a global pandemic. And so there's just so many other considerations um, that mm-hmm. are sort of stacked on. I think having a daughter also just makes it feel also very urgent. Mm. Um, when did you first start to tap into an understanding of the somatics and the nervous system? Well, I had that one therapy session once where it was, I was working with a depth psychologist, so really based in union principles, and she has, she had done some somatic work. And she kind of guide, started to guide me into it. And when that happened, so much happened in such a short period of time that when I left her office, I left feeling like I don't know what I've even been doing for the last 10 years because more mm-hmm. changed in those 10 minutes than felt like they had changed with all the talk therapy and all the archetypal suggestion. Mm-hmm. Now I think it's probably mm-hmm. that some of that narrative therapy prepared me to get to that point. Right. But that was the first sort of toe dip. But then when I started learning about somatic experiencing, it felt as if it felt like I felt when I first learned about rolfing and structural integration. Each each major training kind of opened up a meta level of what I had already been doing because teaching yoga you are helping people regulate their nervous systems. I just didn't know exactly how it, I didn't know the mechanisms by which it worked. I just knew how to respond to a group and how to respond to individuals. So it opened up Mm. this whole other layer of understanding or like, oh, that's why this works in connective tissue. Oh, that's why some people's Mm. connective tissue is like this and didn't change. Oh, that's why Mm -hmm. this kind of yoga practice works in this moment. So that was in 2011 when I started somatic experiencing like school and the year prior to that was when I was really getting more exposure to how somatic experiencing works. Hmm. Um, I'm thinking about this now. I asked this recently to a guest. As you think back on your childhood, all that you survived and overcame, and I know that it was a while ago for you, but do you feel like you had a, you said you're your intellect was sort of your refuge, but do you feel like looking back, knowing what you know now about, you know, not just um, uh, somatics, but also the nervous system, do you feel like you had a superpower that got you through the teen years, early 20s, and even 30s that allowed you to to kind of find your way? I actually, listening to your story, Kimberly, it feels like you've just had this like really strong compass of knowing who, who and what you need and, and really having this like firm strength in pursuing what you need that's what I'm hearing um but I'd love to know if you feel like you had a superpower those years 
You know, I think a lot of it comes from privilege, honestly. I mean, I never questioned if I could have what I wanted to have. And, and what I wanted to have was never really things. I never thought, oh, I want, I want this or that. I just thought I want the best education that I can possibly have. And, you know, I have a mom and a dad that are fallible like everyone else's. But I had a mom and a dad that were always there that, you know, believed in me, that told me I could do whatever I wanted to do, that encouraged mm -hmm. me to do whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, so it feels less like it's some personal quality of mine and more like it's a combination of some great circumstances and resources and, um, and you know, probably some built-in intellect, right, that I that – I, enjoyed learning in that way you know begged my mom to teach me how to read before I went to school loved I mean who loved I mean I loved homework I was like asking for more mm. of it I would ask my dad to make That's me cute. math sheets to work on mm. um mm -hmm. so I loved problem solving I loved words but you know I also I remember being at family gatherings and feeling much more comfortable off in a corner in a room reading than mm -hmm. being in the main room you know uh, mm -hmm. I remember having it as a bit of an escape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think about like, and, and maybe superpower is the, a, a different word now, right? Um, maybe there's like a zone of genius that you feel like allows you to kind of be your, your compass and your like your navigating system moving through life. Now, do you feel like you have a clear sense of like your, your zone of genius that allows you to show up in the world and navigate whatever comes up? have an extraordinary radar for bullshit and for things that are out of alignment both out in the world but also inside myself and I do have quite a bit of trust in my own ability to to discern so and I've been afforded in, in times, for example, when I went to India and I had a relationship with a guru and it became confusing and a sort of stereotypical thing of like, I won't teach you unless you're sexual with me. And I came home. If I had had to come home to the States, if I would have had to get a job right away and I would have had to get my own place to live and everything, I probably would have had to go on antidepressants or something because I was in a really bad space. But at the time, my parents were fine with me living in their house. And even though that wasn't my first choice at age 31, um, you know, I was allowed the space that I needed to, to find out what the next direction was. And even in a space of feeling really devastated, really lost, really heartbroken, to have some patience that there would be another another direction even when I didn't mm -hmm. have one. So I've been allowed to fall apart and come back together a lot mm -hmm. of times. And I um Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not afraid to I, I have a very hard time letting go of people 
uh, I have a very hard time of, of recognizing when it might not be, I might not be looking at the same horizon as someone else anymore and, and that mm-hmm. that has to take a different shape. That's very hard for me. I don't mm-hmm. have such a hard time with um, reshaping myself because I've had to do it so many times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate that for a few times here you've sort of recognized you know the world that you live in the privilege and the support you have had um but I do I do want to just as your friend to give you a lot of credit for the perseverance and in your intuition your badass I think you said your radar for bullshit and I think that that is something that with so many external influences in society and media in academia that can be really fucked up for people you know they they lose that radar they lose that sense of trust really easily and um, I'm very happy you've always had that and you still do um I'd like to ask you a question from from, or go ahead sorry no go ahead I I just I think that there's some part of me that knows that's been in always been in search of what's real and that search has taken a lot of different forms but I know how to recognize it when I feel it and when I see it. And Mm -hmm. yeah. Hmm. Um, When I think about uh, early life for you, you know, this concept of unlearning is a, is a big one. It's basically all of life in some ways, learning and unlearning. Um, And I've, I'm really curious about a few things well, you know, I, I kind of started this podcast because part of me thought most of my life after 20 was unlearning everything I learned from <laughs> zero to 20. Um, and that's not uncommon. There's actually a really great author, uh, Kevin Kling. He's uh, He was born with an arm deformity and then through a tragic accident, he lost his other arm. And he talks a lot about in his work that, you know, the first 20 years of his life was running away from home and the next 20 was trying to find peace and go back home. So I think a, a little bit about that, but with regards to a core learning from your childhood, um, it could have been one that a coach, a teacher, a parent kind of like taught you or showed you or that you glean from the world around you. Um, sometimes these learnings don't have to be unlearned. Sometimes they're universal truths for us or they just stay with us year after year. I'm curious if there's a learning or like a core concept that you got early on in life that still stays with you today. Well, one thing comes to mind. There was one time that I um, I was playing tennis and I was talking to my dad about my tennis match and I was telling him that I, I had a new racket and the racket was just not a good racket and um, so that's why I wasn't playing well. And he told me a story and the story was about a Native American man. And I can't even remember the exact story, but the gist of it was like, is it the tool or is it the person? Mm-hmm. And we can blame the tool or we can look at ourselves. And that really stuck with me, even though, I, like I said, I don't remember the exact story. Um, but I remember several times along the road thinking of, and blaming a tool and then recognizing, like, I'm the one using the tool. Mm. That's a really powerful story. I also... Um, 
really young, really young, I realized that what people have does not make them happy. And of course, that's also privileged because I was living in an environment where people had way more than they need. Um, so coming up in a different area, I would have learned something else. But I I just recognized, like, it's not going to matter what degrees I have, what jobs I have, how big my house is, what kind of cars I have. Like, none of that makes a person happy. And so mm -hmm. from a really young age, I decided I was going to figure out how to be happy no matter what or content mm -hmm. no matter what. Yeah. Um, I wanted to dive into your book a little bit, Call of the Wild. Um, thank you for writing it again. I'll keep thanking you for some time. Um, I'm curious, you know, I, I think, you know, we might have talked about this like sort of offline what was the process of writing it like for you? Like as, as a human, as a person, as you were not only academically like using that part of your brain, but you also had to, I'm sure, have your own somatic nervous system experience. What was the process of writing it for you? The process of this book, um, and I'm, I'm interested, I hope in the future I'll get to talk to more people who've written many books because I'm sure that it's different for everyone and I'm for me writing a book is just a really hard thing to do and every day when I wake up these days I'm just so happy I don't have a book deadline because mm -hmm. when I'm writing a book it's all I can think about when I'm talking to someone I'm still working problems out from the book I feel mm -hmm. like I should be writing all the time so I never mm -hmm. really feel like I have downtime it's like I should be writing I should be writing I should be writing Mm -hmm. Some part of me, I guess, doesn't know my own crea creative process well enough mm -hmm. to have it dialed if there's such a thing. Um, I definitely know that I'm not like some writers that sit down every day at the same time and write the same number of words. Mm -hmm. I'm more of a binge writer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I also wrote a book about the nervous system in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> and so I was having to name trends and write about them in almost sequence because you know I remember writing that we were halfway like you know I was writing in September let's say and I wrote we're halfway through the pandemic and and then I thought to myself how do I know we're halfway through like right, we, right. I don't have any idea like <laughs> all I can name is exactly what's here and the language was changing you know I have a background in social policy and racial studies and so when the murder of George Floyd happened all of a sudden came to the surface a whole new common vocabulary that was really specialized prior to that time. And so for me, it was good because I didn't have to learn a whole bunch more right away to write about it. I had that and I was in some ways extremely relieved that finally I could write about it in an integrated way. But at the same time, there was just so much framing that had to happen. This book originally emerged out of me too and my experience of leading lots of women through the process of moving from a prey position in their nervous system to a hunter position in their nervous system. So all of it was possible. But now here we are in another level of collective stress that eclipses those other questions, although it might layer onto them. So it even made sort of the frame of my book need to shift. So my deadline went, you know, way differently. And I had had, I lined up a lot of support 
for this book, I had a person that was, you know, super hands-on editor, Colleen Martell. Well, she had a baby. Mm-hmm. And when we signed the deal, she wasn't even pregnant. Then she got pregnant. And then by the time mm-hmm. we were in, in process, um, when the edit came back, she was in her fourth trimester. Well, I wasn't going to knock on her door during the fourth trimester. She got out of her fourth trimester March 15th. Oh, pandemic. Now we're in a pandemic. She's got a two or three month old baby <laughs> and her parents who are next door can't watch her baby because of everything. And so all of these layers of support that I thought I had in place to make it more enjoyable than the first time, um, you know, didn't didn't work out. And, you know, there were mm-hmm. other supports that arose, but the structural foundational part of it, it was really hard. I I, I myself was not feeling extremely um, regulated as I was writing about regulation. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a, it was a doozy. Yeah. Wow. I, I have questions about uh, a few things around that, but I'd love for you, you know, the people who are listening today have, I've been talking about your book on social media quite a bit and to my friend circles and in the health community too, medical community. Um, can you kind of go back and, and so in the book you talk a lot about, I'm going to go back to like just a basic foundation so listeners have that if they haven't read the book, but um, can you go back to, you talk a lot about the, um, uh, the, the sympathetic, we have one understanding of it, you add a few layers to it in the book, and then the parasympathetic. Can you kind of go back and just kind of walk us through uh, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic? You refer to it as um, the red and the blue to help us give that visual, which I personally loved. Um, can you just walk us through those two states of being? And you talk a lot about pendulation being the, the ideal situation is that we can sit in both. That would be, that'd be helpful. So in, in high school, when we learned about this nervous system, most of us learned that sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight and the parasympathetic is rest or digest. And that's a mixed metaphor. So when polyvagal theory came around in the mid-90s, it showed us that the nervous system is not, the autonomic nervous system, it's not a light switch. It's not an on and off event like, oh, your sympathetic is on and your parasympathetic is off. It's more like a soundboard of levels. So when we're safe and we're functioning in safety, we're not under threat, our sympathetic system is what wakes us up. It's what motivates us. It's what um, gives us drive. It's an inhale. And our parasympathetic system is what slows us down. It's, it is under safety is what slows us down. So if we were doing apples to apples, then the sympathetic would be the rise of a wave and the parasympathetic would be the fall of the wave. Mm-hmm. The parasympathetic, the sympathetic under stress everyone knows, which is fight or flight. You move towards an obstacle or you move away from an obstacle. And the parasympathetic under threat in the dorsal branch, which is the back body branch, is a freeze or collapse response. So um, pendulation describes an oscillatory function that's already existent within every system of the body. So the expansion and the contraction, um, Mm -hmm. the vasodilation, vasoconstriction, um, pupil dilation, pupil constriction. There's a natural oscillatory rhythm between the stages of nervous system function. Blue and red is, is describing 
red is describing something that's painful and blue is describing something that's pleasurable. And so our system swings back and forth between registering something that feels threatening and registering something that feels safe. That pendulation mm -hmm. is usually not an even pendulation. It's usually swinging very far into the red and then it swings back maybe a tiny bit into the blue and then swings back into the red and then back into the blue. Mm -hmm. But the process of healing mm -hmm. is being able to swing farther back into the blue and hold it before we swing back into the red. And then eventually mm -hmm. it becomes more of an even pendulation because we're not trying to avoid, mm -hmm. pretend that things that are not painful are not painful. We're trying to diminish the extra activation that comes with an obsession with intensity or an, an obsession mm -hmm. with that which is uncomfortable, which describes a lot of therapy, you know, like let's go to what's uncomfortable and then just stay there in this idea that there's something inherently wrong. So we have to go digging around to find out more of, about what's wrong and like really excavate mm -hmm. what's wrong. This is mm -hmm. an approach where we have to actually figure out what's right so that we can even um, metabolize any of the what's wrong. So we're retraining our what's wrong attention, mm -hmm. uh, which is why so many people right away in – is, you know, in the biohacking communities and all of these self-development is always, you know, and it's even in the colloquial now, oh, I'm so fight or flight. Right. Um, and, and sympathetic is just automatically associated with a fight or flight response or a high level of activation. Um, mm -hmm. But equally as challenging to a system is remaining in freeze, procrastination, stagnancy, helplessness, resignation. So each part of our nervous system has a way that it responds under threat. And then as you know, there's a whole other tier of the nervous system, which is the ventral vagal tier, which is the social nervous system, um, mm -hmm. which has its own whole way of responding to safety and threat. Yeah, I really appreciate that explanation. Um, and I, I think that like to your first point, there is a lot of binary thinking about the nervous system or even just fight or flight, right? They're so, but I, I think that what you add is just a tremendous amount of nuance to it. And I particularly like the phrase sort of like a soundboard of levels, right? The nervous system um, versus it being black and white, right? And um, one of the things I think a lot about is our relationship to pleasure, uh, my relationship to pleasure, the people I work with as well. And having worked at a medical startup for five years, that was like gung ho, you know, I was like employee 10 and then we grew to be 300. And it was like, it was such an interesting human experiment to try to give this really great care to the world, but also be in fight or flight to try to do it. Or that, that was how we, we all more or less operated. But Anyway, I'm digressing. What I love is this idea of pleasure. So can you talk a little bit about one line in your book has really stayed with me. You said pleasure is uh, we've been trained or conditioned to believe that pleasure is antithetical to productivity. So can you kind of open that up a little bit and, and teach us how we actually sit with pleasure, how we amplify pleasure? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious about what you said about mm -hmm. are you saying that in your job, there was no way to do your job without being in a state of sympathetic alarm? Well, I think that that was the culture. I think that I, I didn't, most of us didn't want that, but that was the culture of work, corporation, VC funding, more is better, more is better. 
and it was antithetical to our service, which was uh, experiential and human-centric and longitudinal. <laughs> and so we were sort of at this odds of with, you know, it was very, it was a dissonance. And that was hard for a lot of us who were providers or who had that background. So it, it ended up resulting in quite a bit of burnout and some misalignment. Yeah. I've never worked in a corporate job, so I, I have only heard stories and stereotypes and everything. And I think that it doesn't matter what kind of job you have. When our, the metrics of success are always growth, mm. uh, it's mm -hmm, probably mm -hmm. going to put us in a stressed state. And right. I've really contended that with that a lot myself in the past couple of years because number one, because of my earlier life choices, I didn't have I didn't have any savings, didn't have a four oh one K, was living mostly month to month building something. And then when I reached a, a modicum of like, oh, I know how to do this, I know how to sell, um and sort of an abstract idea of of what is enough, I was like people would say, Well, how much do you want to earn? And I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I know what my basic expenses are, but I guess if I should right. try to earn more, then that's probably good. And then do I count savings as part of what I'm trying to earn? And like, how does that actually mm. all work out? Which is another conversation about women and finances and, you know, how yeah. I got to my mid forties without having really a way of understanding that. But, uh, which goes in the category of parasympathetic freeze and denial, mm -hmm. um, and shame. Uh, but, also really coming to a point where, you know, there's, there's definitely periods of time where sprinting is necessary, right? It's true mm -hmm. in life. It's true in business. It's true in, in li a life cycle. Uh, and could we still consider it a, a success to dial something back? It's not going to look mm -hmm. like a success to anyone else only us and maybe the people that are like our close, our closest would be like, good for you for earning less this year. Like, mm -hmm, did, are mm -hmm. you, did you yeah, have a better be radical, time? Are right? you healthier? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's, you know, what I was saying about my college experience where like, well, once I got straight A's, it was like, well, I better not, not get straight A's. What would it be like for me mm -hmm. to say, okay, I can get a B or like a C is great because a C, I didn't break my back. I didn't do any all, all night, all nighters. You know, I still read what I wanted to read or whatever. Um, I'm really confronting that with my daughter, to be frank with you, because to me, you're supposed to try your hardest. Like, that's just, I, I just don't understand. Like, if, if you could do better, why wouldn't you do better? Just, you're doing it anyway. Go ahead and try your hardest. <laughs> but I'm realizing that that's not how she functions. Mm -hmm. And like, maybe it's actually just fine to like, just get by, especially if you don't like it anyway. But then mm -hmm. it, but then I go, but is it mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. what are you, what are we learning? Cause the process of learning itself is the skill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know there's a lot of values that are at, at crisp crisscrossing. Yeah. Um, but your original question was about pleasure. And when I was a yoga practitioner, 
I assumed I loved it because I wanted to be doing it all the time. So I never really stopped to ask myself, do I love this? But if anyone would have said, I would have been like, yeah, that's all I want. You know, just like when I was dancing, I was like, yeah, this is all I want to do. I want to be in the studio all the time. But within my practice, when someone would ask me afterwards, how is your practice? I could never answer. Hmm. And I, it was partially because I was in like the parasympathetic universal haze of like, you know, just super spaced out. But it was also because I was trained that having a preference for anything was actually not the point. Like you're not supposed to like it or not like it. You're just supposed to do it. Hmm. And I realized that um, that's what's happening a lot right now. Like my daughter's reading Lord of the Flies and it's actually the fourth time because she's been in four schools and all four schools assigned it. And I thought to myself, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't think about whether I liked the books or not. I just did it. It was, it was, that was, it was my homework. I wanted to be, I wanted to get a good grade. So mm-hmm. I didn't waste time thinking about whether I liked it or not. But I think right. that's so funny because that's so like not human. And so for me, my healing process, I really had to start developing preferences and deciding what I like and what I don't like, not just... Mm-hmm doing it because it's good for me. And it's such a puritanical inheritance to have this, like, just put your head down and do it approach to things. So pleasure is available in every moment. I think the word is so loaded for most of us that it sounds like we need to, you know, get like a dark chocolate fondue set and like dim the lights and then, (laughs) you know, draw a bath and, those things probably could all be good, but it's really just like what's pleasurable right now. You know, yeah. like is it pleasurable yeah. for us to be talking to each other? Is it pleasurable like to look away from my screen and look out the window? Hmm. And, you know, is it could, – could I even be – could I even notice my experience beyond the doing of it? That's that's what I was going to say. This whole thing of pleasure is really a call to notice, I think, in the beginning, right? And then you start to see maybe it's not the chocolate fondue ice cream that brings me pleasure. But I think that's how we're trained to think, right? And so, yeah, I think a lot about, and I know you actually do this work too with people, is just this this coming back to like a baseline of aware, of bodily awareness and like, what does pleasure sound like and feel like and look like? And what's the colors that that give you? If, if you were to give pleasure a color, what would it be? Or just like all these sort of questions that allow people to, to spend time with it and then to, to nurture and amplify it. Um, I, I just think that like also too, that's just foreign, right? For, for most people and, and was for me for most of my life. Um, I didn't, you know, I was talking to someone else about this with relationship to sports. I, I played high school, college basketball. And I realized now that I was doing it for approval. I wasn't necessarily doing it for the love of movement in my body and the flow and the people I met and and all of that. Like now I am and I can look back and see that. But in the moment, there wasn't a lot of pleasure around my greatest love because there was so much fucking pressure I put on myself to to do well, to succeed, to get approval, to get a scholarship. So that's when I kind of became disassociated with my body was because I, I had to go through pain, really hard amounts of pain, long periods of time to get a scholarship to be to be an okay athlete. Um, so I'm, th- I think that's something I'm actively unlearning is just like 
what is pleasure even look like and feel like to me? And can I, can I even allow that without this like mental chatter coming in and just ruining my day and telling me I should be doing right. Um, that's sort of how it sits for me. It's like, it's been a very big eye opener there for me too. I think it's, we're, I think we're experimenting as a culture right now, realizing that maybe discipline and willpower aren't the only ways to do things. But at the same time, and I don't know how you feel for yourself, but for me, I'm so grateful to the discipline that I had. I'm so grateful right. to the hours and hours and hours I spent in the yoga studio that even though, yes, I did have to unlearn some of those things to learn other things, without that foundation, I don't think I would be the teacher that I am because I don't. I mean, I spent hours and hours on the mat articulating subtle energy and gross anatomy. And when I see people who are in their mid-20s or late 20s that are teaching about pleasure, um, you know, blue and red, they're, they are, it's a yin and yang. There's no play. There's no pleasure without pain, and there's no pain without pleasure. That doesn't mean the more the mm-hmm. pleasure, the more the pain either. But it does mean expanding our capacity to experience that which we call that constellates as life. And so, mm-hmm. I'm grateful to those. I see that what the culture is now is like it's like all about like well if you don't enjoy it don't do it and um, mm-hmm. you know you mm-hmm. should always like the work you do and I think again it's a pendulation for people like you and me that were maybe like really hardwired around doing the right thing and you know and for yeah. some people that's like being really good or then this is like a necessary polarization because maybe we have some inbuilt discipline we don't even know that operates on its own. But for some people, it's like, well, actually the way that you get really good at something is is doing it and you do it even when it's uncomfortable. So um, that's another part. It's just knowing what I love. It's uh, Resma Menachem talks about it and he learned it from David Snarch is clean pain versus dirty pain. Mm-hmm. Mm. So what's the clean pain that's like the uncomfortable thing? It's the it's the pain that somehow feels good that you know is moving you forward versus the dirty pain that's like you're just swimming around in, you're just making it hard for yourself or you're just scratching the wound or the scab. Right, right. Um, it kind of reminds me, are you familiar with, uh, Sharon Salzberg? She's written a bunch of books on like sort of mm-hmm. mindfulness and everything. So she said once, um, uh, I saw her live at the Garrison Institute a few years ago and she was like, you know, if you're going to get through this life with any, with any semblance of, of peace or play, you have to be a scientist of your own journey. And I really loved that. Like that it was also very empowering, right? Like you, you get to pay attention (laughs) if you choose. And if you don't choose, then notice that too, whenever you're ready. Um, but I thought that that was really beautiful on her end to say that. Um, I, I want to be mindful of our time. I do have a bunch of questions. I probably could talk to you, Kimberly, for like hours and hours, but we won't, uh, cram everything in today. There's more time in life, hopefully. Um, I'm curious when you, you asked, a you were talking earlier about your book. The experience of writing the book was was 
was really challenging. <laughs> you were having your own sort of social and bodily experience in writing a book about the nervous system. It's been months since it's come out. It's been really well received and it's been changing lives in many ways. You also have changed, I'm sure, since the day that it dropped. Lots has happened in your life. I'm curious through being a practitioner, a mom and a human, what would you add or change or would you add or change anything to the book months after its publication? Anything that's come to you that you're like, ooh, there's more context there or there's more examples or more avenues? I wouldn't. I would leave it and let it be what it is. And if there's more, then that will that will be born and become something else. But yeah. it is as it is. And, um, you know, you got to let – it's like when you're putting on makeup and then you just go a little too far. You got to let it go and, and just call it good mm-hmm. and uh, and should I – I have no idea if I'll be moved to write a book again, but on this side of writing, I mean, that's the thing about creating is something as big as a book because writing a book is nothing like writing a blog post or a 25 page thesis, or it's a, it's a whole other thing is that of course on this side, holding it in my hand, it's worth it, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you're, that's, it's soul work. It's your, it's your soul work. It doesn't let you go until you do it. It's just going to keep coming and it's going to keep rattling you until you mm. do it. And so on this side, um, there's satisfaction in completion. Mm. There, it, that doesn't mean I think that everything I wrote is right or that everything I wrote can't change or that my worldview hasn't changed. Right, I, right. I have what feels like an emergent new worldview but it yeah. stands on its own as it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, relief in that actually. Yeah, I really appreciate that that context. I, I was more curious just about additional worldviews you just got through living through the second, third half of the pandemic. We don't know when it's going to end. Yeah. Um, do you think that writing the book? Well, to then your- that would be the answer to that question. Then would be um, twofold. Um, one that the last chapter to me has always felt like it would be its own book. So Mm -hmm. the last chapter is more freedom and sex. That feels like it's its own whole Mm -hmm. exploration. So that's one answer. The other answer is that the very last, the prologue of the book says from personal healing to collective healing. Mm -hmm. And what I really ran up against and am up against is what was a perspective that I had that, is very really informed by yoga, which is that we are a microcosm of the macrocosm, each one of us. And so that the work that we do in ourselves will inherently ripple out into the world or will, will change something externally. Mm-hmm. And I now understand that to be incomplete, if not just wrong, um, mm-hmm. that this cult of individualism and ind- hyper-independence is is just replicated in the self-improvement world, in mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. if I just do this, if I make myself more pure, if I eat better, if I dial in my health routines, somehow the world will be better. Mm-hmm. I think we have it backwards. Mm-hmm. I think we just need to be healthy enough to attend to what's happening right right here right now that we all know is dire and yet Mm. somehow 
are barely, barely changing what we're doing to attend to the direness of that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't have any training in that. I don't have any like special access to knowledge about community building or culture making. I just know that the, let's say to borrow from a James Hillman book title, we're a hundred years into psychotherapy and look where we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that's, it's mm-hmm. grim mm-hmm. Uh, that the climate problem has happened concurrently with a hundred years of psychotherapy and that somehow that um, ecology wouldn't be attended to as we obsess over our own personal health and well-being. And I just can't help but know that those are interconnected. So Hmm. uh, there's also one other thing that in this book, I don't think the word grief is mentioned in the book and shame is barely mentioned. Hmm. And that's specific because my book wasn't meant to be a primer on the nervous system, although in some ways the first chapter kind of is a very Mm -hmm. understandable primer on the nervous system. I was writing very specifically about how most women don't have access to a healthy fight response and that if we can cycle out of fawning and fitting in and we can cycle out of freezing and fleeing into fight, then most women will have greater access to their power And my extension of that was, if we have access to power, we will use it for good. Yeah. But I don't know if that means, my hope, which I'm learning that hope is also a bit empty, uh, my wish, my dream would be that that would then be used for this next project of culture and community making. Mm -hmm. But when I look on social media, I see that that that's actually not what's happening. Hmm. Um, what's happening is even a more emphasis on shit like bucket lists and, um, you know, people's next big travel wish going to some country where they might know something more about culture making, but taking our sickness of individualism there, that's just going to pollute that place. So, um, I am really committed right now Uh, Well, not any more committed than I've always been to what I've said is like this radar, but um, all my attention is going towards coherence Mm. and coherence in what we're talking about. Do I need to do these big marketing campaigns to have these big courses? Are bigger courses Mm. more impactful? Is reaching more people the measure of success does it feel like success to me because what feels like success to me is when I actually talk to another person who's read the book and has something specific to say about it Mm -hmm. it doesn't really feel I mean it feels cool to know that lots of people have read it but what does that really matter to me if if it doesn't bounce back to me in any way that I have an idea of how it might have yeah yeah somebody or Mm -hmm. um you need that reflection that personal specific um, reflection yeah, and connection. So, you know, I'm I'm sitting with the big questions, the existential questions that I think many people are. The somatics and trauma world is proliferating. And four or five years from now, everyone's going to know the language in, that's in my book. But will we be in any different of a place just because we know the language? Mm. 
Mm. Will we have actually, will we have actually made, will, will we have actually conceded any of our undeserved power or, you know, will we have built anything of consequence or will we just feel better because we have a new language and maybe we'll be some distance from this pandemic. Mm. Really, really interesting reflection. I, um, I've always felt like since the moment I met you, one of the things you cared most about was community and people. And, and, and that's a really, really genuine thing I've always felt. And I feel, I feel that too, as I'm living alone though in Brooklyn, I still don't understand living alone. It's a weird thing. Um, but I, I do think, you know, as someone who's read your book, who has me personally is actively noticing hour after hour, day after day, relationship after relationship, what the fuck my nervous system is doing and how I can calibrate and how I can just be gentle with myself. Like I, it is changing lives in that way for the people who are ready to, to practice and to learn. So I, you know, um, I think, I think you're on the path to coherence. And I think that, you know, one of the things I try to tell myself and after leaving my the company I just left which was grow 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 scale is the only way I I vehemently dislike that (laughs) and I really believe small is fucking big and that the most valuable things in life don't scale the way that we envision them to and I I I try to I'm trying to embody that now in my next chapter of life both relationally and professionally so um I, I thank you very much for writing the book. And I have one last question for you, although, again, I have a thousand, but maybe I can have you on in the future to talk about what's next. Uh, my last question to you is, uh, if you were to define unlearning to give it, or basically what comes to your mind when you hear the word unlearning? Well, what I feel when I hear the word unlearning is relief, uh, mm. softening, permission and what and it kind of drops me into the back of my waistline and my solar plexus and what I think about it is that I think if we had some intact culture and and some experience at all of elderhood and what it might be to be near someone or many people who are true elders there wouldn't be so much we needed to unlearn we could trust the learning that we did Mm. thank you Kimberly that's beautiful thank you Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.